Welcome to the Bipolar Excellence Podcast, helping high-functioning bipolar people find and use the positive aspects of bipolar to build their passion projects. I'm your host, Ken Jensen. Please always keep in mind, I do not offer any treatment advice. I am not a trained medical professional. This podcast and its adjoining website contain my experiences, thoughts, and opinions about bipolar. Always seek the advice of a medical professional when dealing with any mental illness. On with the show. Welcome to the Bipolar Excellence Podcast, Episode 4, Dr. Larry Smith Embracing the Journey of Recovery Interview. Dr. Larry is a really cool dude. He's a chiropractor out of Canada. We both wrote the books about our our life stories at the same time using the same company. Once again, with these old interviews, I did a, there's the interview, and then I revisited it years later for an old podcast I no longer have. And I gave an explanation of what was in the interview there, so I won't carry on here. This one's going to focus on addiction more heavily than anything else. But if you're a follower of mine, I feel strongly that unfortunately this might pertain to you. Seems to come uh, addiction and bipolar seem to go hand in hand. So with that, here is the old interview. Enjoy. Hey everybody, this is Ken Jensen with the After Bipolar Podcast Episode 4, the Dr. Larry interview. I'm not sure exactly when this interview happened. Uh, Dr. Larry and I both used the same company to help write our books. And that's how we got connected to one another. It was on a group call of some sort for the with the owner of that company, uh, Glenn Dietzel. Glenn has evolved a number of times into something completely different from when I first found him. And I got to meet Glenn once. That's a side story. I'm going to connect, I'm going to link to Glenn in the show notes, and I'm going to have to talk about that sometime. That was an interesting day in Manhattan with him as I broke probation to go meet him. (laughs) Back to Dr. Larry. Uh, Larry is a chiropractor in Canada, and he had a, a long run with addiction starting from when he was young, same as me, but his lasted far longer than, than mine did. Um, he wrote a book called Embracing the Journey of Recovery from Tragedy to Triumph. And I interviewed him in relation to my story. And his story was so, you know, so similar. Addiction is addiction. And he had a lot to say about it. And he read some stuff out of his book in this interview that you're about to hear. Um, very pleasant demeanor. Very fun to talk to. Very nice guy. We talked a few times before this, before I inter- interviewed him over the months. And it was just really nice to meet him. I fell out of touch with him years since. But I don't know. I'm going to have to... I'm going to have to find him again maybe and bring him bring him on as a guest. I'm sure he'll be willing if if he still even focuses on sharing his message as he once did. I don't really know. Just a real nice guy. Real positive thing to bring into my life just meeting him as I brought him into others. So, here's that interview. I handled it well. I liked how I how I did it. I wasn't so, uh, I wasn't any kind of uncomfortable like I was when I did the radio interviews, the actual radio station interviews that preceded this one. I just can't remember when I did this exactly, but Larry wrote his book in 07. I know my book, its final version was in 08 and Larry read that. So I'll bet it was around the same time. I was just having a better day and Larry was an easier situation to deal with, I guess, for my nerves. (laughs) So here's that interview. Enjoy. This is Ken Jensen, the Bipolar Eradicator, and I am speaking with Dr. Larry Smith in Canada. He's a chiropractor who overcame 
many addictions and went on to become a triathlete. And Dr. Larry is a friend of mine that I met through a book authoring program. And we see eye to eye on the benefits of exercise and overcoming addiction and just leading life to go the way you want it to go so that you can stay healthy, stay on the right track, and get what you want out of your existence. Um, Dr. Larry wrote a book about this. He's going to be talking about it some more. And he's going to go into specifically what his life travel was all about and what he did to beat his addictions and how he stays clean and sober so that you folks might pull something from it as well. Okay, Dr. Larry. Hey, it's great to be on the call here with you, Ken. So I'll just give you a little bit of my background. And uh, let's just say I have a lot of qualifications in alcoholism and drug addiction. Uh, <laughs> Don't we both? I graduated from a treatment facility in both 1997 and 1999. I guess I didn't learn my lessons, so I had to go and suffer for a few more years. Usually in public, I give them my academic qualifications, but uh, for the sake of tonight's call, yeah, that's my qualifications there. The good news <laughs> is um, I have, it's about nine and a half years clean and sober, and uh, these have been absolutely the best years of my life. As you mentioned, I'm a chiropractor. And practicing in beautiful Vancouver Island for coming up to it says 22 years now. I have a live apart together relationship with my girlfriend Lori and her family, and we've been going out for about uh, eight and a half nine years. And I also still have my father and my sister in Winnipeg. Just lost my mum back in uh, last last September 29th, and uh, it was uh, as sad as it was to see mum go. It was a uh, Great to be with the family at the time of passing, and also it was great to be clean and sober. You know, enjoy the last moments of uh, mom's life. Uh, right now, you can't see it, but I'm wearing a marathon shirt that I should have been, uh, I should have earned back in 1997. Uh, I'm wearing it because that's uh, when I was in treatment, and I kept it with me because I really wanted to do a marathon that year, but I was so sick and. Uh, distraught and uh, very, very ill and nearly died that they couldn't do it. But again, the good news is that since cleaning up, I've done six marathons, six half Ironman triathlons, and two Ironmans. And that's you know, something I always wanted to do was the Ironman triathlon, but uh, I never could quite seem to train for it because the drug addiction kept on getting in the way. Yeah, it eats up time. Pardon me? It eats up time. Yep. And uh, I'll just go over my early years, just a little bit uh, how I got started with uh, my, with my drinking later on in the teen years and then the university years. I'm sure many of you who are, uh, suffered from addiction will relate. Uh, I first got drunk at age 11. Uh, my parents, because my mom was a non-drinker and my dad was a social drinker, and they had company over and they um, didn't realize they shouldn't be leaving uh a full bottle of white rum in the kitchen unguarded uh, because I have to watch people drink and it seemed like it would be a fun thing so you know I guzzled about uh, 10 ounces of it straight and uh, let me tell you that was the, the highlight of my life getting drunk for the first time oh my god I was <laughs> I was so high I felt wonderful I was on top of the world I was funny I was Mr. Magnificent and that lasted for about an hour or two, and then things didn't go well for me after that because uh, I, I went up and then I came down and got violently ill and threw up all over the place and uh, all over the company's shoes. And uh, basically, the next day, it's probably the sickest I had been in my life. And uh, my parents, of course, were quite upset. And uh, that's when I declared to myself and to the whole world the alcoholic national anthem. You know what that is? <laughs> yeah, I'm yeah, never going to drink again. <laughs> <laughs> Complete then, with many promises. Yes. And uh, unfortunately, it took uh, 30 years after that for that to come through. So I started at age, started age 11, and I um, didn't quit till age 41. So 30 years of uh, drinking and uh, lots of other little drugs in there to go along with it. So that was one of the big things that happened to me at age 11. The other things that happened to me at age 11 was I was molested by a priest, and I won't go into too much detail into there, but obviously a traumatic experience. 
but another good thing that happened to me at age 11 is I received my first chiropractic adjustment. And it impressed me so much, you know, I thought, gee, maybe I might become a chiropractor one day. So I really loved the guy, Dr. Kramer. He was a, such a cool guy, and I thought, maybe I'm going to do this. Um, and the other things that uh, happened at about age 11, I was started to become really involved in community and school sports. I was into football and hockey and gymnastics and, uh, you know, the thrill of scoring a goal in hockey, you know, that was just, you know, just it was such a wonderful feeling. And, you know, I'm still playing hockey to, uh, as of this day. Same with scoring a touchdown in football and uh, same with gymnastics and then learned to do my first backflip. So a lot of things were happening in my life at that uh, in the formative years, you know. Some of them positive, some of them uh, not so positive, but, uh, you know, that's how life goes. But as you as you see, as I'm going to be talking about, uh, you'll see how it all turned out. Okay. So, uh, takes me into my teen years, and I was continuing to do well in school and in sports. You know, I was mainly interested in the sports, and I would do well in school. Just, yeah, you know, enough to get by, but when I got pushed, I could get the good marks. But, uh, you know, I wanted to get the parents and the teachers off my back and play sports. And then there was this thing called alcohol I wanted to do on the weekends. So by the time I was 13, 14, I was basically the weekend alcoholic. We would uh, go out drinking Friday and Saturday. Um, and we used to call it fishing. Uh, go outside the liquor store, the, uh, the beer vendors, and the uh, drinking age was 21 back then. So we had to get the older people to buy it for us. And uh, that never seemed to be a problem. And the only important thing was hiding it from mom and dad. And that seemed to be... Uh, get harder and harder because if they saw I was sick on Saturday and Sunday morning they would suspect I had been drinking and uh, with my mom you know drinking alcohol and being drunk that was only what the vagrants did and what bums did and no son of mine was uh, is going to be a drunk uh, but little did she know that I was doing it all the time so that continued on and uh, there's one story I can tell you when I was age 16 I didn't even have my driver's license uh, Back then, is uh, I guess we had run out of run out of beer or alcohol, so I decided to steal my friend's car and uh, go pick up some uh, some alcohol, and at the same time uh, call on a on a girlfriend, or I think I thought she was my uh, my girlfriend. <laughs> Good news was I got back to back to the apartment uh, safe without smashing anything up, uh, but my friends weren't too happy with me, so they kicked me out, and so I tried to hitchhike home and ended up uh, being picked up by the police. So it was a good thing they picked me up on the uh, while I was uh, walking and hitchhiking rather than driving, or it would have been even harder to explain to my mom who had to pick me up at the police station. So that was my uh, first and last experience uh, uh, being at a police station, uh, I'm, I'm pleased to say. Uh, oh, just, just that one time? Yeah. That's incredible. <laughs> I am. Um, yeah, there's some other stories there with uh, with being caught, and this is just before I went into treatment, and I got pulled over, and I told them I had hypoglycemia, hadn't eaten in three hours, and I said, well, if he doesn't believe it, I'm just going to say, take my keys away, but he believed it, and he brought me some granola bars. <laughs> so I was uh, incredibly lucky, however, yeah, this, uh, with the drinking and driving, it's dangerous, I... Uh, I have a lot of guilty feelings about that over you know over the years that I did that, and uh, fortunately, I didn't kill myself or others. Uh, well, it is a miracle guys like you and I didn't didn't do more damage with a vehicle than than we did, but you know we're here now to make sure others that might be listening to this don't take it at least as far as we did. Maybe oh, exactly, story exactly. and turn it around faster than we did, not take the decades that we did to turn it around. Yeah, and I'm guessing I'm getting at um, the, the new generation here with my my girlfriend's son is he's found some mood altering chemicals, and I keep on telling him about you know I don't want you to go down my road, and he quite understands that. However, it hasn't stopped him so far. So yeah. Now, now beginning to feel how what my mom and dad felt like it's like the, the helpless feeling of oh god the kid's gonna do it we got to keep him safe. So yeah. Yeah. That's... So um. Moving on to uh, university years, uh, that's where you, we upped the ante here because I went to both the University of Manitoba and uh, Canadian Memorial Chiropractic College in Toronto. And, of course, there's uh, 
more academia. You have to study a lot, and I was still doing gymnastics uh, at the University of Manitoba. And what it meant is I had to work harder, uh, and uh, I had to practice harder doing gymnastics. But, of course, that meant there was more of a reward on weekend. Uh, I got to drink harder since I deserved it because I worked so hard during the week. So my typical university day classes, I go from uh, 8 o'clock till about 2, uh, have gym practice till 5, and basically study all night. And as I say, starting to party all over week, uh, all weekend. Um, one morning I started to get sick and uh, I was getting a cold or a flu. And my sister had some 222s. And uh, all I knew was is my clogged up... Uh, nose and my uh, my fever went instantly away and I got instantly high with that, uh, with that hit of codeine and the uh, only thing was it bothered my stomach and um, I fixed that problem so instead of taking the 222s with aspirin I took uh, Tylenol with codeine and in Canada it's uh, readily available over the counter without a prescription and unfortunately that one I held on to with the booze for the next uh, 30 years. Uh, it just, I, I can't even tell you what it did for me. All I knew is I need to have it. If I didn't take it, I would get a rebound headache. Uh, I needed it to study. I uh, basically needed it to function. So at that time, university and chiropractic college, amazingly enough, I was uh, trying to stay straight during the week, but on the weekends, it was the alcohol. But in the meantime, I was onto the codeine, and my favorite were the, uh, the benzos, all your Valium and Xanax and what have you, as I had. The, the voice of anxiety in my head because I had to study so hard, I had to work so hard, and I was uh, I was so worried about passing, and I just quiet, wanted to quieten those voices, and uh, that's what did it for me. And um, unfortunately, I became more and more of a recluse. I did have friends, but I would never tell them what I was doing outside. They might see me with a beer or two, so I was hiding and hiding everything, and uh, I was. The pills, unfortunately, were readily available. You know, the advent of the internet, uh, the doctors didn't give it to you. You just, uh, you know, you went on to the um, to the internet. So this was becoming a problem for me uh, academically. I had not done well on a few courses, and I knew I couldn't drink anymore. So I would take antabuse. Um, for those of your listeners who don't know what it is, it's a drug that makes you sick instantly as soon as you uh, take it. So I would take that on Monday to Thursday, stop taking it on Thursday, and start drinking on Friday. But unfortunately, uh, uh, one time I was drinking on Friday, but the antabuse hadn't left my system, and I was turning violently ill. I was bright red. My heart was pounding. Uh, all I knew was I felt very sick, but you know I had to get drunk. So what I decided to do is I had to clear this from my system. So I found a sauna, and I started to exercise in the sauna so I could get the, the antibiotics out of my system so I could go and get drunk. Now, now isn't this that insane or what? That's pushing the body and the heart and everything so hard. I, I know they were big on antibiotics when I was in the Marines, and there was guys that, same thing, just had to get drunk. They, they'd take it. They'd just vomit throughout the night and just keep drinking anyway. And oh. um, I never got stuck with antibiotics for all my drinking, but it was pretty horrendous to watch what they were going through. Oh. and. And we were yeah, made of tough stuff, so we just keep. They would just keep going. <laughs> yeah, and basically, it doesn't work. It's um, for short periods, yeah. But just uh, as we'll get into uh, later on, the recovery takes a lot more than taking a pill to make you sick. Um, yeah. So meanwhile, going through the you know the university chiropractic college years, you know, it's a series of volatile relationships. Jeez, uh, I couldn't figure out why. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> It ended in a quick marriage and a disastrous divorce, and uh, uh, that's something actually I'm grateful for happening because my ex-wife, she threatened to tell the world my secret, and she did. This guy's an alcoholic, uh, but the thing is I don't have to hide from that anymore because now I've I've written a book on it and I, I've overcome it. She was trying to use that to for me to stay with her. didn't work, though. Yeah. No, no, gimmicks gimmicks don't work and yeah. you just got to fix the problem and that's that. Yeah, and then I had a quite a concerned priest. It was it was I was attending at a church at a time you know, just to, to meet some people and they were a nice group of people and he finally took me aside one day and said, "You know, son, 
says, you can't get close to God if you've got all this stuff going on in your head. And he says, no, my brother's an alcoholic, and he gave me this big blue book here. And it's the uh, the big book. And I was reading with uh, with with quite a lot of interest and until I found out it says I was learning how to control drink. There was nothing it said they you couldn't drink at all. And so I thought, well, this is no good. So you know that was the end of that experiment. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, it's too bad. It made a lot of sense, but you know, it means you can't have any. And I just couldn't I remember talking to my sister back then. How can you possibly live a life without alcohol and drugs? I was screaming to her as I was going through another tantrum of how bad things were. And but, that's uh, the biggest that's the biggest thing I, I think besides the problems it causes for, for any of us, whether we're mentally ill or not or, or you know, in quote unquote just alcoholics or drug addicts. Yeah. You you just you can't imagine how to fill whatever hole you mistakenly think it's it's filling in your life. You can't see how to operate without it and it's horrifying and that fear keeps people on so many levels from just kicking it out of their life and and living a better life that's like, it's just around the corner. I know, I mean, it's just, it's there. I just couldn't conceive of it at the time. Talking to you, my, my stomach is turning because I know how how messed up I was, but those emotions, those feelings, they're still, I've got them. I knew exactly what I felt like, and just, uh, I like to talk about the stuff, I like to keep it at arm's length, but I don't want to forget what I was like, because I don't want to go yeah, there. Yeah, right. Yeah. At that time, um, I thought I was seriously mentally ill. Um, they said there's got to be something wrong with me. And when they went to um, when I went to treatment, they had uh, got a psychiatrist in, and they were talking about me having borderline personality disorder because I like to uh, you know harm myself uh, uh, physically. Um, but they said they weren't sure. You know, you stay sober for a year or two, and yeah, we'll see how you're doing. And uh, you know, sure enough. Uh, as you say, just an alcoholic addict. Uh, there, there was no no mental illness, and at the time, I was hoping I was. Then it could take Prozac, or then it could take some some type of drug. Yes. <laughs> it was. Uh, I really, for the first year or two, was hoping there was something else wrong with me because I just I wanted to have that prescription, that fix. But I must say. Uh, I know people who have the dual disorders, and uh, you know that's no fun. We, we we never really know, you know, what's causing the problems until you until you clean up. You know, so after after re- reading your book too, I think yours is you were masking your your illness through the uh, through the booze, from what I understand. Right, and then at different times, one of one or the other's in the lead. You can't tell really what it's the snake chasing its tail. You can't tell which one's actually driving the show. Oh yeah, and they both make each other stronger. Yeah. But um, that's the background um, uh, through, you know, the, the early years, teen, university. And uh, as I say, amazingly enough, I did set up shop in, uh, you know, in Vancouver Island. Uh, and I put on the image of looking very happy and healthy on the outside till my family crashed uh, back in 97 and 1999. But um, as I've mentioned to you before, I've written a book and... Um, we don't want to talk about all the, the the war stories and how bad it was. I mean, we have to recognize that's part of our story. But uh, one of my main themes of uh, <clears throat> embracing the journey of recovery is hope. Um, I've made it. Uh, you've made it. And uh, the the people, your your subscribers, they're either making it or they have made it or they, they will make it if they keep trying. So what I would like to do for you, Ken, if you would uh, allow me to, is just go over some of the stories uh from embracing the journey, and uh, <clears throat> what I talk about in the first chapter, uh, it's called the message of hope, and it's basically not about what's happened to you, uh, nor is it a contest of who has most pain, worst trauma, or serious disease, because to each person suffering from a life-threatening injury or illness, his or her situation seems the worst, doesn't it? Definitely. Yeah. So the focus is on the present. Uh, what an individual can do to move forward, and we explore the issues of the recovering individual, but we actually confront the many problems and uh, dilemmas that inevitably arise. And you want to embark uh, on the journey with a balanced approach of the mind, body, and spirit. If you're injured mind, body, and spirit, the recovery's got to be mind, body, and spirit. And uh, as we talked, uh, you talked about earlier, as is we're basically into the into the fitness part of it because I see a lot of people. They do their meetings or what have you. 
stay clean, but they still have so many uh, health issues. Uh, they're not leading a quality life, even if they are um, clean and sober. So from the beginning, my story is uh, getting into recovery. I was 41 years old, uh, had a well-established practice. I uh, was a sports enthusiast. You know, I really appeared happy and healthy on the outside. But after my divorce, I, you know, I finally realized I, I had a real serious problem with alcohol and uh, you know the other mood-altering chemicals. I had contracted pneumonia. I had lost nearly 35 pounds, and I could barely walk. And that's basically when I gave up and finally asked for help. And I was on a very rapid downward spiral. And just before I crashed, uh, I ended up writing into a, a journal uh, my thoughts and feelings. And uh, I'll just read that for you here. Uh, okay. It's actually quite powerful. It was dismal, dark, and damp outside, which perfectly mirrored my inner world. Lying on the cold bathroom floor, I perceived that struggling, helpless boy from outside my body and wondered how he could escape. I've been hiding so many deep, dark feelings for so long, and I now realize that I've just been masking my pain with alcohol. I need to get help and to find the courage to tell somebody my story. But I'm so afraid, and I'm so lonely. It seems that the grown man I have become can find no way to escape the feeling of pain, humiliation, hopelessness, and despair. Who will listen to me? Who will believe my story? I feel much like the character described by T.S. Eliot in the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock. I should have been a pair of ragged claws scuttling across the floor of silent seas. And uh, that was the last uh, coherent thing that I wrote before I uh, finally was dragged on into uh, treatment. It's a very, very uh, low part of my life. Uh, yeah, it's a pretty dark image. Oh, it is. Uh, I have a humorous anecdote, too. The, the two people that dragged me to, to treatment, uh, and this is what, I, you know, what you attract into your, into your life, is uh, I guess this one person thought that we had a relationship, uh, and I really didn't know what she saw in me, but uh, she was... She had watched me get married, and she was going to. After I got divorced, she was going to marry me, and this is while I was, I was, I was dying as, as a drug addict. And then two years later, uh, I stumbled upon. Only this time, it was a guy who told me I was, I was gay. He was going to clean me up, and uh, then I would realize that I was gay. Then I could have my life back. So uh, I have to bless both of them though, because they got me to treatment and they saved my life. It's yeah. amazing what you attract into your life. <laughs> it it is, and and people, the one of the things I like people to understand is life does not happen to you. It might feel that way, but that's not the case. You're you're directing it and you're bringing it to you. Whatever you're seeing in your life is really a reflection in the mirror. Oh. You're seeing your thoughts brought to reality. Nothing's happening. It's a, yeah, yeah, reflection of what the, uh, of where you are at that particular time, and you know that's yeah. what it was. There's uh, there's a lot of hurt, there's a lot of confusion, and uh, but again, I am grateful for having survived that because uh, without that, I wouldn't be where I am today to appreciate what I have, and um, and that's the next topic I would like to talk about is gratitude, and I know you have a lot of gratitude after you know reading your story, Ken. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yeah, I, uh, I couldn't put your book down. <laughs> quite, well, thank it, you. It has, it has to end sooner or later. All the things that were happening to you, but I'm going, oh my goodness. This is, I seem yeah, like it's, a, it's, yeah, like that's that's a common reaction. People, uh, uh, I won't use the language a seventy some odd year old lady told me once, but she had had friends read it and say that geez, he just he just wouldn't quit. He just kept going until he made it. And but even with you, I mean. Um, you know, would you say like 30, 30 years of, of um, drinking and for all my problems, um, we had different shape problems, but you were at it probably even longer than I was. So you hung in there too. <laughs> exactly. Uh, the memories. Yeah. <laughs> Thank it, God it, your memories. <laughs> yeah, just, just burnt, burnt in there. Um, where was I? <clears throat> Gratitude. Gratitude. Okay. So how do you practice gratitude when you're feeling shit, Ken? I mean, I get that all the time. With uh, easy for you to say, Doc, and you know you've got this beautiful life of yours, and yeah, yeah, yeah. Look at me. I've lost my job and my wife and my car and my my kids hate me. Um, 
So I go back to what happened to me in treatment, and uh, basically it's it's practice it every day. Uh, you know, at the end of each day, you take inventory, and it's not to say you ignore or deny events or situations that are painful. You acknowledge them, but the, at the same time, you acknowledge the good things that happen to you, and um, you know, simply understand the truth that uh, in each and every day, there are plenty of things to be grateful for. And I strongly feel it's virtually impossible for a person to heal and become well if they're 100% focused on pain and suffering. Right. Yeah. And you go along with that, I'm sure. So in the right, because even if you find tiny things to be uh, grateful for, it's it's like banking money. They just start adding up, and 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 uh, they they give you they add up and give you strength to go forward. You start seeing you, and it's a way of looking at life too. It's it's not just it's not just banking them and pulling from them. Like you just said, it's the reverse of talking pain and suffering constantly. You're talking yeah. some positivity. It, it 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 keeps you going. I mean, if you can hang on to that. And um, early the early days of uh, my recovery, uh, you know, I could barely walk. I was pissing my pants. People were making fun of me, and I was detoxing and uh, I had withdrawal symptoms. You know, the hallucinations, the shaking, and uh, I, I basically didn't even I was going to live. And then I felt humiliated because these drug addicts were laughing at me. Didn't they know I was better than them? No, the hell <laughs> right. <wrong? laughs> <laughs> 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 the arrogance. <laughs> so uh, they ended up being some of my best friends. So, not... so in my severely weakened state, the you know the counselors would come up to me and they made me find one good thing that's happened to me each day. And of course, I'm looking at them. What good can you possibly find since going into treatment? And so they just sat there and said, you sit down there. We're not letting you go until you tell us one good thing that's happened to you today. And then I remembered uh, there was one of my peers named Shauna. She'd basically seen how the other people were making fun of me. She befriended me. And um, she said she went through the same thing when she was detoxing. You know, She says, I know what you're going through. Um, hey, buddy, you're in the right place. You're going to get better. I'm going to be your friend. And uh says, let's just hang out together. And that, you know, the act of kindness that was the the flicker of light and hope that uh, kept me trying for just another day. Uh, it was just the, the one act of kindness. And the next next day, basically, they're saying, okay, the, you found something yesterday. What did you find today? And there might have been ten bad things, um, but there was always one or two good things. And uh, I have practiced that faithfully, and I'm... Actually, proud to say, too, even more so as the years of sobriety go on, I've become more grateful, even though at times um, I guess we all get down and despond and things aren't going our ways. But uh, when my mom was passing, I would recite 15 or 20 things I I was grateful for about her and her life, and then saying, gee, there's a great family around me. Hey, I've got a great career. Uh, You know, I've got a house. I've written a book. I'm in good shape. Says, what the heck is it that I'm uh, that I was so uh, depressed about? And I've seen a lot of people coming into my practice. They're really in a lot of pain. They're not doing well. Uh, and I just have to keep getting smacked on the head, to, which is why I make a practice every day. Count ten things that are um, that I'm grateful for each and every day. And uh, they say I do it on on most days. But I have one for you that uh, you probably have already done yourself, too, is you pick the, w- the worst day of your life and just pick five things that you're grateful for that happened on that day. You may not be able to get it on that day, but there are uh, great things that have happened because of a tragedy. And, uh, you know, I can't um, say I was, I was blessed when I was down there, down, down not only in the dumps but nearly dying. You know, why am I grateful that I'm dying? But right now I can see... The um, um, the gratefulness because I was down there. Now I've survived. I can help others. What a wonderful thing, isn't it? Well, that that is. I mean, um, I mean, even for me, it took me a long time. Once I even started to become better, it, it it took a while. It took a solid year for me to even handle getting off all my medications. I was off of them in months, but it was a year before my body and mind stopped assaulting me with panic and whatnot. Um. But now, you know, same thing. At one point, I was a recluse in my parents' basement for two years, and God help anybody that got too close to me. <laughs> I wouldn't even know what I would do, but I could guarantee you it would be bad if, if, if my mind told me to do that. I couldn't even stop it. 
And now, now I, I help people uh, like you do. So that ties into as far as gratitude. Like on two of my worst days, I was I was dead, dead. Uh, my heart magically restarted after a millionth time they they electrocuted it back to life on two different occasions. Buddhism. So I've always been grateful for the docs and the ambulance drivers. <laughs> Because uh, I wouldn't be here now doing what we're doing to help people, you know, hopefully get out of this or, or avoid it entirely. Well, when they hear it, to know it's possible too. It's not just, you know, and everybody's got their own story. And, and uh, like you had said earlier too, it, 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 there's no need to compare. I mean, yeah. I've been dead all the way dead, so I'm mm. a medical miracle. But you, just if you haven't done that, it, it doesn't matter because, like you said, wherever you're at on the pain ride. You just can't imagine it being any worse. It's yeah. and that's that. Yeah, it's, that's uh, that. So don't 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 think because someone's worse than you or or you're not as bad as someone else. You've got room to keep going. It's either way, pain's pain, and and you just you want out, and it and it's unnecessary. Even even with mental illness. Oh, exactly. Well, uh, yeah. Speaking of is mental illness, and um, my my partner Lori, um, the reason that we're together is through a tragedy. Is uh, her husband committed suicide. I mean, uh, and he, he was the one always helping other people out and uh, you know, a, a total surprise. And uh, no one knew. And went to the doctor to get meds two or three weeks before before he uh, did himself in and uh, that was the end of it. I guess he reached out uh, too late. And uh, so Lori and I were comparing our notes. I was new in recovery and she was New in her recovery too, and that's what we said. Let's not uh, have a relationship of who's who's got it worse. Why don't we help and support each other? Right. And uh, it, you know, it's worked that way. And, you know, watch watching the kids grow up too. I mean, that's another thing. The kids, you know, without the father and uh, you know, the resentment of another man coming into the house, and uh, which is why we stay <laughs> lived apart. Was <laughs> uh, it was a, was a smart move? But uh, as they say, yeah, there's. We all have our story, and uh, you know, I'm grateful that you know we attracted each other into our lives, and you know, we're we're still going strong. And yeah, it's, it's no piece of cake. We uh, we have our moments, but we've worked through everything, and it's uh, a lot of us just you know work in the recovery program. And she's grateful for what she has too, and she has hope, and um, she helps others. And that's my next topic, basically, is. Um, when you're in recovery is, is do you help other people or do you just um, spend more time uh, working on yourself? And the person that I wrote in, about in my book, uh, his name was Joan, uh, she had cancer and basically she had spent her whole life looking after, looking after other people. But she thought for her recovery, the hell with it, I'm going to look after myself, the other people will have to wait. Now in my case, it was the opposite because... Uh, uh, basically, and I'm devoted to looking after my patients all day long, but I didn't have any dependents to support at home. And in the early months of my recovery, you know, I lived on my own. There's no significant other. There's no children. So, um, so after what, I was about six months clean and sober, uh, I was encouraged by my sponsor and uh, peers to begin helping others. And by you know doing service, volunteer work, um, I'd be helping others. But uh, they said, yeah, it's going to help your recovery. So I took this really seriously, and I you know, regularly became the chairman for my uh, support group. Uh, and I found out a lot of things. Uh, number one was the, I already knew it before, but the harsh and cold reality of alcoholism. And you know, I was um, really privileged to lead a meeting at a local detox facility on three different occasions. And recently it kept me in touch with the physical pain, the emotional anguish, the hopelessness of those suffering. And all I gave was a very simple message uh, to those attending the meetings. Um, um, they are experiencing the same thing. I experienced the same thing that they were going through. I understand their pain, and I was giving them hope. If I can recover, so can you. So after about a year of sobriety, I had a day I'd always remember. I signed up with another member of my group, and we went to a local prison. And... Um, it, like I say, the cold, hard reality of alcoholism hit home that night. And we walked in the doors, and I know the prison guards, they graciously welcomed uh, myself and my friend Pat. And, and they said most of the inmates were in prison because of crimes related to alcohol and drugs. And um, the meeting went very well, even though we only had about five people there. And I remember this one guy was describing all his problems with alcohol. He committed all the break-ins and robberies to feed his habit. 
But you know, I listened to the guy, and I really believed that he meant business. And you know, I says, when you when you get out, let's I'm going to take you to meetings. Um. So after the meeting, my friend, who is a little longer in sobriety than me, basically had two sobering things to tell me. He says, yeah, yeah, don't get your hopes up too high uh, about trying to turn some of these guys around because they're just at a very high risk to relapse and uh, re-offend once they release the release from prison. And then the other thing he told me, you know, is very sobering, is the person uh, that I had gone through uh, had very bad news about one of my peers from the treatment center. Uh, the disease had proven too much uh, for my friend, and he committed suicide. And this is a guy I looked up to in recovery. I thought he was doing a lot better than I was, but he couldn't take it anymore, and he decided to end his life. And, uh, you know, how could it possibly happen when the guy seemed to be doing so well? So, you know, that was a jolt back into, yeah, this thing is serious. Uh, You know, it's really serious. And then three weeks after that, uh, I had news about the person I talked to from the prison meeting, um, and it was more bad news. Uh, The man who I had um, expressed a great desire to clean up and go to AA after he got out of prison was once again in trouble with the law. So the the fellow, what he did is he got out of prison the same night he was released from prison. He got drunk, committed another robbery, and was arrested, and he was back in prison. Yeah. Yeah, we've we, I, I think when a guy like that, and ourselves included, because we've, we've probably done it, uh, would like just, just trying to quit drinking alone. How many, how many hundreds of times, if not more, did we mm-hmm. swear up and down we'd quit? And then, you know, as soon as the hangover cleared, we went back to it. But it, it comes down to habits, and, and uh, this transfers even to mental illness. That's the interesting thing I learned. There's a lot of, of parallels and similarities between addiction and in various mental illnesses, there's a lot of crossovers. If you and if you have a dual diagnosis, you're almost you, you got double work on you because you're 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 almost blowing it twice as hard. And um, but a lot of it comes down to habits. And oh. you can mean from your heart. You and you probably want it. I mean, all of us that have drank long enough, we want nothing but to never drink again. You really don't. But until you change how you think and your habits, you will return back to it. Yeah, and that's, um, you're hitting the nail on the head because that's the next thing I'm going to talk about is, you know, what's what's the plan then? You know, we're talking about hope and we're talking about helping uh, helping others, but, you know, let's get down into the nuts and bolts. And um, what they uh, gave me at treatment was uh, an aftercare plan, and uh, that was to replace all the habits. And uh, this is all to do with accountability. Uh, they weren't going to let me go unless... Uh, I came back to to the facility and, you know, I could work part, part-time, come back and tell people how my day was, get my meeting set up in the neighborhood, you know, get the, set up in the community. I had to go to my banker and my accountant and the lawyer and, you know, my office manager. You know, they're all concerned, but, you know, basically at that point is, you know, could they trust me? Um, but I had to assess up, here's what's been going on, uh, you know, come clean. I actually, it was very cleansing. People were... were we're, we're very, very helpful, but, uh, you know, unless I did that, it just, well, you know, what's wrong with them now? Um, so the plan that came up for me was, number one is three meetings a week, and uh, I did basically five to seven a week. I would go to work all day, uh, have supper, go to a meeting, uh, go home. On each Tuesday, I would go back to the treatment facility for aftercare. That's another an hour and a half of... Uh, of group session and they recommended 14 months I did 18 months and um, I'm not the outgoing type I mean I'd say lean towards uh, introversion uh, although I can I can talk when I'm really interested about something like about recovery I can talk for a long time mm-hmm. but coming to these group meetings here I actually dominated the group which means I would be talking about my issues and have the counselors and the peers jump all over me just to make sure I was on track. And I'll tell you, that was tremendously helpful, especially the last four weeks, because uh, I said this could be my last session. I really wanted to get strong feedback. Uh, uh, what was I in danger of doing? Uh, was I getting too overconfident? Uh, that type of thing. And I really got hammered. And I used to hate that in group. I hated getting hammered. I wanted to you know, hide all my secrets. But uh, there was no secrets, because we were all basically the same. 
Yeah, we're we're the same guy or girl, pretty much. <laughs> we have we have all the same fears. We uh, we have we have hopes, um, and it's through that I got the wonderful connections. And another thing to be grateful for, you know, real relationships instead of uh, what kind of clothes somebody wears, what kind of car you drive, or uh, you know, you know, those things are nice. But I I want to know a person, you know, with a big heart and helping others, and uh, you know like that. That turns my crank, and you get to know somebody on a, you know, a, a real feeling basis, and uh, you know, that's what I get from the support groups is just you know that real connections with people, and uh, you know I had them come, a very diverse group come to my 50th birthday party. I had yeah support group people, there's a few professionals, um, uh, some kids, some neighbors. It was just uh, and everybody had a you know, family, and everybody just had a wonderful time, and. Um, it was just it's so nice to have people like that, uh, uh, you know, a caring group of people, and uh, and you can have fun too, and yep. uh, and you don't have any, uh, you don't need the uh, need the alcohol to have fun. I mean, I I sort of believed that when I was drinking, but I thought really no, it's not possible. <laughs> you have to be drunk. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> how could you How could you have fun without it? So anyway, yeah, that's uh, so the meetings, the aftercare, and the other thing is to you know find um, somebody, uh, a mentor, a sponsor to, you know, we've had that through you know our, our book authoring too, is you know somebody who's been through that before, and then uh, like you and I talking to each other too, is you know mentoring each other. Um, you need that, you know, somebody who's been there before, and I have, I had a really uh, quite a good sponsor. He he would just put me back on track if I would be whining. He'd look at me and he goes, "You're okay. Just do your work." He didn't want to hear any crap. <laughs> Very quiet and firm, and that's all I needed. Just a little, you know, smack in the head. Just, you know, shut up and just do your job. And um, so the sponsoring was another thing, and then it's reaching out to people, you know, make three phone calls a week to somebody uh, in the recovery circle. And it could be the same people. It could be different people. And, uh, in fact, in lieu of my meeting tonight, that's what I'm doing is I'm calling you here because I was so excited I can have a – a whole meeting where I get to talk for a whole hour rather than listening <laughs> to everybody else. Well, and I'm glad to have you. So <laughs> it's, it's nice. Uh, and the other thing um, to recover too is you need to look at your nutrition. And um, I can't go into specifics here for you, you know, for those who want nutritional advice. But I think a lot of people let's start out with three meals a day because we still have a lot of people in recovery. I had a friend of mine. He would. Uh, go to work, eat nothing, have nothing for lunch, and then come home for dinner and have uh, a nice big dinner and then a meal before he went to bed. I mean, just, oh, not healthy and, uh, you know, for recovery or for your heart. No, and I, I that's that's the first step, and that's the first step in my system that, that I teach, and it applies to um, addicts and alcoholics as well, um, probably even more so if you're mentally ill and, and don't have addictions. But um, yeah, the I mean, you're, I I look at the body as a simple machine. Uh, it's more than that. But if you just take it as a machine, it needs things to go. Yep. And in this case, for this topic, addictions. When you drink and do drugs, your body, your body to fight the destruction you're causing, it uses up all its resources to try to keep the boat afloat. And now it's out of parts. And <laughs> and your body will consume itself in a mad effort to fill holes elsewhere. It'll create holes somewhere else. It's robbing Peter to pay Paul. And then, and for, for my listening audience, that's one of the things that leads to bipolar or, or very severe depression. So one of the first things you have to do is start repairing the, the nutrition deficit. I love that analogy. That's from your book, isn't it? I don't know. <laughs> I really talk so much. I don't know where they come from. I, I, I just love that because it makes so much sense. And, uh, you know, I... I could really relate to that. I work on trying to improve that too. Since I've, the Lori and I have been together, uh, I've worked on the nutrition. As um, it was too much, I don't have time to eat. So I'll eat a hungry man, and just you know, like way too much fat in there. I mean, it, it was a meal, just not a very healthy meal. So now we're just tonight. I did a little better there. As is, you know, I have a nice uh, pasta casserole with tuna in there, and I steamed some vegetables. You know, very nutritious. It's got all the food food groups in there, and I have an orange for dessert. There you go. Um, well, and one of the things people don't realize, like uh, in the case of, let's just say, drinking, 
Um, we all know enough drinking will give you heartburn. You'll, you'll almost never go anywhere without your Tums or Rolaids when you're, when you're drinking hard. But um, besides the body being poisoned, and, in, and, and by fighting it, it, it depletes its reserves of, of enzymes and vitamins and minerals and everything to, to get rid of all the alcohol and repair the physical damage. You also wipe out the lining of your intestines and all the little bacteria that are in there that are supposed to be in there that actually help you digest your food. So now not only are you using up your pieces, you're not getting any fresh pieces added back in even when you do eat. And then on, to top that all off, you start damaging. People don't realize the intestines where almost all of the serotonin in your body is made, which is what keeps you naturally happy. If you mess up your te- intestines, you can physically damage your ability to be happy. Wow. And pe- a lot of people don't seem to realize you need healthy guts, not not just to look good or be strong and fit. Your ability to be happy is directly in jeopardy. And drinking and drugs, I mean, between the poisons themselves and then the way you'll eat or not eat while you're high, you're you're killing the center of you that that keeps you happy. And we wonder why we didn't feel well. Exactly. <laughs> uh, I'm glad you brought that point up too, because it's just you know some of the you know the simple things too. Again, it's just, the scientists and society is looking for the magic pill. It might be a part, but uh, you know it's the whole the whole healthy living is the whole, the whole recovery. It is. It, you you have to you have to take the universal look at your situation, whether you're mentally ill or, or an alcoholic or a drug addict. It's all it's it's all related. You you have to look at your whole life and start fixing everything in a sensible fashion, and do whatever's the easiest first. But but taking a pill, I tell people by taking a pill, it's like putting out a, a a pan fire on the stove while the rest of the house is going up in flames behind you. You got well. your stove under control. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> exactly. Um, so next, the other thing that's uh, missing, as we both talked about here, is the exercise. And uh, for me, that wasn't a problem. You know, a marathon runner, triathlete, yeah, most people don't want to be getting into what I'm getting into. It just that happens to be part of me. Um, you want to start out, though, three to four times a week. Uh, I mean, in treatment, they made us walk twice a day, which was, which was just great. But small steps as well. If you haven't been exercising, you've got to get the medical clearance. You know, we want you to be doing a little bit of cardio and a little bit of stretching. You do that for a while, get your body used to the movement, and you'll feel better. And then when you're starting to feel better, then you can start adding things like, you know, some weights or maybe some Tai Chi and yoga. Uh, whatever turns your crank, you know, try to working to work all the, all the systems in the body. But again, as a, one of my pet peeves is standing outside of uh, some of the support group meetings is uh, the people smoking. Mm-hmm. And uh, exercise doesn't seem to be important, and it just drives me crazy. It's like it's like like almost I'm a I'm a weird person because of all the exercise I'm doing. I'm going, no God, you guys got it all wrong. <laughs> you should be doing yeah. stuff. I mean, I mean, I love the, love some of the people dear, you know, they're, they're dear friends. But uh, you know, I lost one because he continued to smoke. You know, five years sober, but he got throat cancer and died. I mean, and you know, brings tears. Well, to and in a way. I'm grateful in a backwards fashion, and I almost wish other people, I know other people do, but I mean like on a higher percentage, I wish people could experience what I experienced. Part of how I ended up quitting uh, smoking and all the drugs and drinking and staying away from it to this day is not so much any of the loftier ideals involved in what people, you know, do to, to, to stay clean. But like, you know, going back to mental illness, I know that if I throw something down the hatch that does not belong in the body as food, air, or water, I'll have a panic attack. And my panic attacks are so huge, I, I will do anything to avoid them. And in this case, all I have to do is behave. I, I kind of wish more people could have that effect, have that that happen to them almost. They stay straight too. It's it's and it's hard. Oh yeah, it's hard. And then I, I used to get very mad because once I went straight, I had whittled it down to nicotine. And then I got mad because I realized, like, okay, it just dawned on me one day, I will not have fun. Or I will not be able to relax if I don't have any nicotine. And then I just did the rest of the math. I'm like, so that's it. So you're telling me without nicotine, this is me talking to me, I'm not going to enjoy myself just simply because a bag of chew or a, or a box of smokes isn't around. And then that just seemed ludicrous to me. And I got real mad and I realized I, I needed to find out why, like you had said, a crutch. Why, why does there always have to be at least one thing on board? 
<laughs> and I got very annoyed at myself, at my weakness. And a lot of people do, but I just, I kept getting annoyed and, until I was like in a rage about my weakness. And I decided I'm going to figure out why I seem to need this crutch. I didn't want to be beholden to a substance. It made me feel tiny. Oh, <laughs> uh, it just, yeah, it, it, it's fascinating when you talk about getting getting addicted to things and, um, yeah, it blows my mind away what people can get uh, addicted to and, and for how long, and some never overcome it, which is a tragedy. You know, it's yep. a, a tragedy. And then back to your exercise, uh, you brought up another good point there. Uh, I write a lot about what I do, and, uh, and when I'm in the gym, I'm one of those guys that you're not so sure you even want to come right up and say hi. I look kind of intense, and I'm usually lifting as hard as I possibly can, and that's how I've done it for years. And and I love that. And, you know, people for a little while till I address this were thinking that's what I wanted them to do to beat their bipolar. Or like you would hockey. That's pretty insane right there. That's flying teeth and blood and gore and, and then running a triathlete. Yeah, triathlon. yeah. There's only about, I don't know, a couple thousand of you guys, period. So that's that's pure madness, in my opinion. <laughs> you know, oh, yeah, yeah. Jokingly. But people don't, they need to know, you don't have to go to the levels you and I go. That's a personal choice. No, that's that, that's it, yeah. They yeah. just have to move. Yep, yeah, you get. I think you get moving. And you find something you like. You know, um, I got a friend of mine. He doesn't do much physically, but it's consistent. You know, half hour, forty-five minutes uh, a day. He says it's not much, but it keeps me going. It keeps me happy. And I said that's perfect. There's nothing wrong with that at all. I mean, he, he's got quality sobriety in there, and he's, he's helping an awful lot of other people. So yeah, work at your own. Um, you got to work at your own pace. Find what works for you. You know, and there's a lot of resources. There's personal trainers, there's coaches, there's your friends, there's your family. Somebody out there will be able to help you. And then uh, in your book, too, you, you you talk about that as well, I believe. Oh, yeah, definitely. It's it's one of my steps, big time. You you have to get moving. You have to. Your body's not designed to hold still. If you think about it, think of a, a person who's a paraplegic or doesn't have their legs, a use of their legs. A lot of the times, these people don't live as long as the rest of us. And I would think it's got a lot to do with just the body not being able to move. There's something about moving, locomotion in general, that keeps the body healthy. It was meant to. We were, we were meant to move. That's, you know. um, the last thing, before I get distracted, uh, we're talking about physical exercise. Uh, mm-hmm. For myself, I needed vigorous, but the other thing I found I needed was uh, some quiet time, which is what I've done now for the past nine and a half years. I do a personal meditation for about 25 minutes, I have my, go to work, have my lunch, and I, for 25 minutes, I let my let my mind and my body go, and it just restores me, so I can go out in the afternoon and work very hard. Um, I feel rejuvenated, and uh, also right now I've trained myself too, is where I need to relax after dinner for 10 minutes. I can close my eyes and go, you know, right down the well, and it rejuvenates me. And I have the most relaxed feeling in the world, which is what I was looking for, taking copious amounts of Valium. Um, mm-hmm. it, brought, it brings me right down. I feel relaxed. And that's without a chemical in my body. In fact, it's way better than any chemical I've put in my body. And so I was able to train myself. And I just, the last two or three years, I noticed, you know, geez, this is the feeling I was chasing after all these years. I just wanted to have quiet. I didn't have these voices bothering me. Uh, you know, the demons coming in my head, just, you know, screaming at me. And, um, I'm able to, for the most part, unless it's a really bad day, quieten myself down. And of course, on the bad days, I'm not doing well. That's another story. And, you know, I can't sleep, but uh, I think that's going to happen to anybody at any time. But for the majority of time, I've, through, um, through the quiet time and the meditation, it's done, uh, done wonders for me. So yeah, there's definite, definite benefit to holding still, not, not taking a nap, holding still, staying conscious. But yep. but not energizing any thought processes. Uh, there's a big health benefit to that. Yeah, that's the, they've done a lot of studies on it. You know, whether it's transcendental meditation or you know mindfulness meditation or just sitting still, breathing. It, you know, it doesn't really it doesn't really matter. So that well, that's what I've got uh, for my aftercare plan. And when I go to the treatment centers, I'll read it to the people. Um, when I'm uh, taking a medallion or when I'm telling them my story and. Uh, and I basically, you know, look in the eyes of them and saying, I know half of you guys out here, you, you're, you're working on your aftercare plan. You're just about ready to get out. And already you're thinking, well, I don't need to do this. And I don't need to do this. <laughs> <So stop. laughs> 
you need you need it all. Yeah, I know the counselors are jerks, but they really do know what they're doing. Well, yeah, and that's 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 another scary part for people in 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 trying to even undertake something like what you and I have done to fight our you know in my case mental illness and both our cases addiction. You're it's it's not a one shot deal and you're done. You have to change your life and stick to that plan forever. And forever is a very scary word to people. Yeah. But it can be done. We've done it, and, and I know personally you and I both have our different ways we can teach people to, to be cool with that, so to speak. Well, that's the, that, the go ahead. of it, too, is, we, is the diversity. There's no cookbook way. There's some basics you need to do, but, uh, I mean, we all come from diverse backgrounds. Yes. Now, Dr. Larry, um, where can people get a copy of your book? Uh, basically, right now, uh, if you go on to uh, Amazon.com or Amazon.ca or any of the online bookstores, uh, that's where you have it on sale. Or uh, if your first 10 callers call me, I can give you an online version for free. Uh, that's Dr. Lair at Shaw.ca, D-R-L-A-R-R at Shaw.ca. If you just send me an email, say you want my book, I'll send you uh, an online copy right away. No problem, no charge, because uh, I really believe strong with what you're doing and helping people here so I know I'm very you know excited to help you out Ken. Well, that's very good of you. And 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 what was the name of your book one more time? It's Embracing the Journey of Recovery from Tragedy to Triumph. Okay, good stuff. Yeah, yeah um this is going to be a big help because I I had so much on my plate with helping people on just mental illness. I I've never dug too deep into fighting addiction. Um and there's some, I think there's some different unique ways about how I went about it that don't seem to translate well in a lot of different other systems. So I enjoy taking people to guys like you who have a clear-cut system and working it into what I do. It's a big help to people. And then, like you said, uh, different different systems are, are better for different people, too. Exactly. And I'm, I'm working right now with the, uh, with the local group, the Forward House Community Society, and they basically it's men- mental illness. And if you happen to have the mental illness with an addiction, they'll take you as well, too. Um, so I have done presentations with them over there, and I've become a little more familiar with the types of mental illness, how people are deal- dealing with it and seeing them in all stages. And uh, it's really neat to see these people, uh, you know, turn their lives around and, you know, you know see the happiness, the joy. You know, uh, you watch them through the struggle, and, you know, I haven't been back in six months, and I see these people, and they've transformed themselves. No, and you and you personally know how huge the, the the sense of relief is when you know you've got it and, and your life's improving and to be able to pass that knowledge on to someone else and watch them take it and use it oh. that's uh that's supremely gratifying I mean, and not because we're so great or nothing it just simply is very gratifying no like basically we took our wreck of a life and we turned it around and did something good with it exactly. and they those people can go on to do the exact same thing or do something Whatever they can take the good out of that and help someone, problem, you know, in some other completely different fashion. But they're not going to be able to help anybody if they're still down in the hole. Oh, exactly. So as long as you get out, uh, you know, you know, face each day, you, you do something a little each day. If you're feeling crappy, you know, get up and call somebody. You know, have, have your have your breakfast first. Get on the phone. Uh, there's a lot of things you can do. No one says you can't feel crappy. Because you know you will for a lot of the time, but. You get out there and you get to do something every day. Same thing with my system. No, no difference. It's it's not going to be an easy switch. And you like my, you make you, your mind up and stick to it. You liked my comment too. From uh, you read my Iron Man story when I was going yes. up, oh, going up the hill uh, for for your listeners. Uh, <laughs> I was at about a hundred. The the bike race is about a hundred and eighty k, and I was at about a hundred and thirty k, and I was having a horrible time again against the wind, and I was just swearing and cursing and. Yeah, I didn't have any gratitude then. <laughs> and, <laughs> and near the top of the hill, there was a sign that said, Suck it up, princess. <laughs> <laughs> that is something you would most definitely hear a lot in the Marine Corps. <laughs> I oh. laughed very hard when I read that. Come on, girls, you can make it. <laughs> exactly. you got somebody behind me who is 78 years old, the sister Madonna Buddha. She's a nun. <laughs> She had the most impact of anybody there. Yeah, you did uh, this fight to get well. You 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 think you're all done, but you're not. You you can always give it one more tiny push. 
That's something I learned in the Marine Corps too. You always got another, you got another ounce of, of push left in you. You just have never been pushed this hard before to to have to prove that you have it. And you've done it, and I've done it, and and we can show other people how to do it too. Oh, absolutely. You know, as I said, I'm excited to you know to be on the call with you tonight, and uh, and I hope we can continue doing this in the future here. Oh, definitely, and 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 uh, in the not too distant future, side by side on stage, that would be fantastic. Oh, geez, I would love to. <laughs> I'd absolutely love to. Well, all right, Doctor Larry, I thank you very much for your time, and I know pleasure. this will be a big help to people listening. Yeah, and uh, as I say, they've got the email. If they have any questions for me, uh, anything in particular, drlarryshaw.ca. If you want a copy of copy of my uh, online book, or get it at the online bookstores, Amazon.com. And um, I think our books are they kind of work together hand in hand. A lot of the the same themes. Yeah, yeah, definitely. All right then, I appreciate your time and. Uh... I think we'll cut that off right there. That should hold people for quite a while. All right. <laughs> All right, Dr. Larry. Have a good night. That's beautiful. I'm watching the Lakers game, so. You're happy. I know how you basketball people are. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Good night. good night. Bye-bye. So that was Dr. Larry. Cool, mellow dude, right? I, I really hope I connect with him again. I know, I, I feel strongly he's still... He's still working on sharing this message, I'll bet, in one way, shape, or form. And I'd really like to connect with him again. Who knows? Maybe I'll reach out to him. I'm not sure what I'm doing with a lot of this just yet, but it would be nice to interview him again and just see where he's at and see what new things he's learned and then just just to say hi to an old friend. I really liked him. Fingers crossed. I hope you liked that interview. I hope you go get Larry's Larry's book, Embracing the Journey of Recovery. And between his story and my story, maybe you find what you need to overcome that particular demon set. If you want to know exactly what I did to overcome that demon set, go to my website, outsidersjourney.com. Find the green field for my free wellness system. Click on it. And you're in. That's exactly what I did to be bipolar. And my addictions, bad as they were, were just one facet of the bipolar problem, the much larger problem. If you'd like to know what I did with the wellness that followed, then click on the blue lady, give me your email address, and let's start building out your dream together. That's it, guys. Thanks for listening. Catch you on the next interview. Uh, Two, is it? Two to go. All right, see you.